Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Uh, we have been told that we are by people that we love and respect, but I think it is worth asking the question to see if this is actually true of you. And the question is this. Well, the question is this if I turn this on. The question is this. Are you perfect just the way you are, says the guy who just made a mistake, which I also did last night and neither time was planned. Okay. Are, are you perfect just the way you are? In today's Western world, we are being asked to accept two good but contradictory ideas. One is that you are perfect just the way you are. And the other is that you need to grow and progress and get better. Now, uh, I love Mr. Rogers, and I assume that you do too because you're not a monster. But this is the first place that I heard this, Mr. Rogers telling me that I'm perfect just the way that I am. And I am not one in general to disagree with Mr. Fred Rogers, but in this case, because I... It doesn't take very much examination of my own life to say, no, actually, I am not uh, perfect just the way that I am. Uh, I hurt people. I hurt myself. I mess up. I fail. And I do all of that a lot more often than I would like to. The need to grow seems really obvious to me when I look at my life. And where that need to grow goes really sideways and does become a significant problem is when the recognition of my imperfections becomes condemnation or self-loathing, how worthless I can think I am because I make mistakes. And so there is a good and needed truth, I think, buried behind this idea that you are perfect just the way you are. And, and it, is, it is a good truth, and it's this. You are lovable just the way you are. And I know that sounds sappy, but stick with me for a second, because it is still true. You are lovable just the way you are. This is what we all want to believe, we all need to hear, and it is what Scripture promises us. You are lovable and loved. You don't need to grow or get better in any way to be loved. And yet, most of us look at our own life and we don't feel particularly lovable as we are. And so we turn to the other solution. If it's not enough, just look at myself and go, okay, I'm, I'm lovable, then we turn to the other one, which is to grow, to grow. Either to grow in my ability to love myself or to grow to become more easily lovable. And we live in a world, in a society, that really does, overall, want everybody to feel loved. I know it doesn't sound that way in how we talk to each other online and such, but if you did a little man-on-the-street kind of poll, hey, do you think it's, it would be a good idea that it's a good thing if most people feel loved. Do you think people should feel lovable? The vast majority of people would say, yes, of course, 
that is a very, very good thing. And so you'll have people look into their cameras on YouTube or whatever else and say, hey, you need to know that you are lovable just the way you are. Frankly, even though this is also a very good truth of scripture, the world around us, our culture, is probably doing a better job of communicating this than the church is. When we can get hung up on the condemnation side, and let me tell you how you're wrong, the world has said, hey, what we actually want to hear and need to hear is that we are lovable as we are. Now, the problem is the world wants everyone to feel loved but wants to accomplish that with love. We would like the love of the king of people have to love me. And one of those situations better go perfectly because this is a deep-seated need in my heart and soul to be loved. And we know... By the time you're, what, 15 at most, you've been wounded and you know that other people are not going to love you perfectly. You're going to get hurt. So our only option left at that point is to love ourselves perfectly. The problem is that love without a relationship is fickle or shallow at best. As Sky talked about a couple weeks ago, as we were talking about the character of God and the person of God and the person of the Son and the Father, there needs to be a relationship for love to exist and flourish. There needs to be love given and shared. And so we are asked then to love ourselves to be that own self-fulfilling relationship. And just logically, if we want to do this without a God and we want to do this protecting ourselves from the wounds other people will give us, it's our only option left to love ourselves. But again, most of us look at ourselves and we don't feel particularly lovable. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to be perfect then. And this is why the word has changed from you are lovable to you are perfect. Because we have to come to an agreement that I am perfect just the way that I am in order to be able to fully love myself. That I don't need to grow, I don't need to change, I don't need to do anything different. I'm perfect just the way that I am so that I can somehow create this love relationship in and of myself. And when we can't do that, when our imperfections and our selfishness and the things that we do that make it harder to love us, whether that's loved by ourselves or loved by other people, when those kinds of imperfections and shortcomings hit us in the face, then we can't turn to the I am perfect as I am option, so we turn to the grow option, and round and round in circles we go. Uh, By show of hands, and I will not hold you to anything, um, and last night, uh, there, there was very little show of hands on this. So I'll just, it's a, it's a safe space. You can raise your hand if this is true. How, by show of hands, how many of you uh, made a New Year's resolution or some sort of goal for 2023? Okay, excellent. That's a lot more people than last night. So this example is gonna work a lot better. Uh, 
New Year's resolutions are essentially a growth goal, right? It is using the calendar as an excuse to say, I want to improve this area of my life in this amount of time. In the next three months, six months, in this year, this is an area that I want to grow. Better habits, better boundaries, better shape, better relationships. I want my life to be better in some area. And people in the get better industries start ramping up the advertisements. They are everywhere. You're just sitting on your phone trying to crush candy and there are just get better ads flying at your face and you can't get away from them. And I'm not even condemning or criticizing them for doing that. That's the industry they're in. This is their time of year to shine and so expensively shine they do. And that makes sense to me. Buy this and you'll feel better. Join us. You'll be better. Better you, better life. Everybody wants to tell you that they can help you grow and help you lead the life you want to lead. But what if, what if the key to life is actually death? And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why I am not in marketing. That does not sound appealing at all. Uh, so I, I want to go to a different example. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about seeds, okay? Uh, this here, this is an acorn. Uh, it, it's about as real as Hollywood is, but it's an acorn. I would not recommend planting this. You'll just get it dirty. But an acorn nonetheless. An acorn is essentially a seed, right? A rather large seed as far as seeds go but not nearly as large as the oak tree that it eventually, if real, turns into. And this is the kind of growth that everybody in the Get Better Industries wants to promise you. This is what every book and seminar and guru wants to say they can help you do. Acorn to oak tree in 30 days, right? Come to our conference, read this book, we will help you have the kind of growth that you want to have. Go from seed to tree, losing to winning. Realize all those dreams that you have. All you have to do is buy our product, come to our seminar, read our book. Now, how are you going to get there? How are you going to have a, a seed to tree kind of growth in your life? Well, in our world, we are given two options. And if you start paying attention to all those ads while you're crushing candy, you'll see that they are one of these two options. One is to out-hustle. We will give you the motivation, the drive, the uh, reward that you need to out-hustle your coworkers, out-hustle the other businesses, out-hustle your calories. We're going to teach you to out-hustle. You're just going to out-work everybody and everything. And that is how you are going to go from seed to tree and realize those dreams in your life. The other option is a shortcut. We're told you can hustle or you can shortcut. Buy our book, buy our pill. We'll help you get the results that you want without all of that pesky hard work stuff. These are our choices. Out hustle or shortcut. Now, how does a seed actually grow. Well, in keeping with the uh, time of year that we are in, here's acorn to oak tree in three easy steps. Ready? 
First, the acorn is planted. Generally by natural methods, the acorn is planted in the ground, buried in the soil, trapped underneath the earth. And somehow, this acorn does not see it being buried alive as a problem. I would see that as a problem. It does not. It sees it as an opportunity to grow. It's planted. After it's planted, it's nourished. You guys remember all this stuff from like second grade biology, right? It's planted, it's nourished, it's watered, it's warmed by the sun. The very soil it is trapped in helps warm it from its warmth from the sun, helps nourish it. It's planted, it's nourished, and then it's broken open. You can find actually time-lapse videos, if you are into such things, on YouTube of an acorn turning into an oak tree, or I guess into an oak tree sprout, because we're not that patient. But you can watch it buried underground, and uh, it's, it's kind of boring for the first little bit because uh, it's, it's just sitting there. It's, it's just a seed. It looks just like this, only underground. And then at some point, its nourishment causes it to break open, and this shell is split apart and dissipates into the soil to provide nourishment for the next seed, the next time around. And a sprout starts pushing out of this seed, pushing up out of the ground and reaching for the sky. Okay, so maybe, here's my hope, that this is better, this is a better uh, tagline for us than the key to life is death. Ready? The key to life is being buried, drowned, and broken open. Okay, much, much, thank you, thank you. Sometimes we get pity laughs. This time I get pity encouragement. Like, yeah, that was, that was better. <laughs> Don't quit your J job. Okay. Uh, so let's just do what we should have done in the first place uh, and go to what scripture says about growth and life. This is Romans chapter five, starting in verse three. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. This is not any better, but you can't blame me for it this time. That's what the guy says. When we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. I'll get you the right screen. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. We go through stressors that cause growth. And we know that this is how growth works. Whether it is an acorn or our character or muscles, we put them through stressors that create growth. We go through hard things and develop the grit to be able to keep going, which becomes a sprout of character stretching for the sky, which becomes an oak tree of hope, steady and sure in the storms of life. We go through these stressors in order that we might grow, like the acorn in the soil. We have an opportunity to see those things as a problem or as an opportunity to grow. And we know that this growth is needed because we can look at ourselves and know that Maybe we don't have the strength to keep going, to keep pushing through whatever obstacles life is throwing at us. 
Maybe we recognize we don't have the integrity to actually stand through whatever storms are coming. Maybe we just have days where we are hopeless and we have opportunity to grow. In fact, to live the life we want, the life that we are made for, we need to grow. But I wanna keep going in this passage because there is such good truth in it. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You are loved to death, not because of how good you are, not because you earned it, not because of your perfection, not because you're gonna grow and one day you will somehow deserve this kind of love, but because the God of the universe loves you as you are, fully and completely. If you've never been sure or if somebody around you has never been sure why somebody would follow Jesus with their life. When it boils down to it, this is why. Because we will never be loved more fiercely and fully than we are by the God of the universe, who loves us with every ounce of power the God of a universe has. And when we are that loved, what we are really doing when we say, I'm following Jesus, is we are responding to that love. We are responding to an unconditional love that accepts us, loves us as we are. To follow him is simply to respond to that love in as much a reflection of that love as we can muster. So for those of us who are following Jesus, what does this mean for us? What changes in our life when we recognize we are loved in that way? Now, I wanna recognize and realize that not all of us are following Jesus and fully recognize how loved we are. I struggle a lot of days <laughs> to believe that this is true, but this is the truth that we are loved this fully and completely. And so for those of us who have responded to that love, which is as simple as saying, yeah, God, I believe that you love me that much. I accept that Jesus died for me, not because I deserved it, but because you wanted to forgive and love me. And I accept that your spirit of love is in me. For all of us who have done that, a couple of very key things have changed about our lives. One is our position with God, our, our relationship with God, which is where Romans 5 continues. Verse 9, and since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored to the was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. 
So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. What an amazing thing to be made a friend of God. So that's one thing that has changed. It changes our relationship with the God of the universe, but also internally. Who we are, our life has changed. This same guy, Paul, who was writing to the Roman church also wrote a letter to the Galatian church. And in it, he says this. This is Galatians 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul has been writing to the Galatians about our tendency to try to earn our value, to try to, to earn our love and relationships by what we do and, and how well we do it, by our behavior, our achievements, our performance. And specifically for Paul growing up, he was trying to earn and prove his value by how, how well he could follow the rules of God the rules that God had put in place for his people. And, and Paul's saying, I'm gonna show up every day and I'm going to follow these rules perfectly. God, I'm gonna honor you in every single way. God, I'm gonna be the best in my class in all of my religious classes. I am going to be as passionate for you as any person has ever been passionate. God, I'm gonna do it all the right way and I know that you will bless me if I do. I know that you'll stay close to me. I know that you will favor me if I do. God, how am I doing? I'm doing really good. God, can you see all the amazing things that I'm doing? I really am the best in my class and I really am passionate. I really wanna honor you with my life. God, have I proved enough? Have I earned your attention and your favor and your blessing enough? And Paul's saying that in Christ and turning his life over to Christ, all of that goes away. He says that old me, that me that had to earn and prove and achieve, that me is as dead as Christ was dead. And the new me is as alive as Christ is alive because Christ lives in me. So now my life isn't marked by striving and proving, but by trusting God. What if growth isn't a daily habit of achievement, but a daily habit of trusting God? What if growth isn't a daily habit of prove it and achieve it, but a daily habit of trusting God? And here's why I think that is exactly what God intends for us. In the very beginning of scripture, we read of God creating the universe of proving how good he is at growing things. And that account is split into seven days. And on day six, he creates humans and creation is complete. And he looks at everything that he has made, everything that he has completed in these six days. And he says, hey guys, this is really good. This is really good. Well, that still leaves day seven. Now, I know a lot of you know what happens on day seven, but what would we expect to happen on day seven? He's just completed creation. 
He's ready to give humanity their marching orders. Look, you're gonna rule, you're gonna serve, you're gonna love, you got some things to name, we got plants to learn, which ones are poisonous and which ones aren't. We have some stuff to do. It's about time we get to work. And yet, on the seventh day, God rests. Why? Because God got tired? No. No, because God is establishing a pattern for these humans that he has just created. A pattern of work and creativity and rest. This day of rest was so important to the pattern of our lives that God put it on two stone tablets that we call the 10 commandments. Right up there with don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery is this idea of Sabbath, of this day of rest. And I was joking with another pastor recently that uh, I think Sabbath and murder are on the same list because if I don't take the Sabbath, I'm gonna murder somebody. So I think it's really good that they're in the same place. And I hope none of you believe that and I'm worried some of you did. Okay, (laughs) moving on. Uh, This is uh, what was written in these two stone tablets or at least the English translation. This is Exodus chapter 20. Verse eight, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. A rest, a hands-off, pencils-down, deep-breath kind of rest. And we'll talk more about Sabbath next week and how that works in a society that isn't built to have one. But for now, I just wanna talk about Sabbath as an ultimate act of trust, of trust. Pastor Rich Velotis says it this way, Sabbath is the gospel. For on this day, I do nothing. And yet, God loves me. Do you hear the echoes of Romans 5? While I was still a sinner, while I'd accomplished nothing good, Well, I'd done nothing to prove or earn or achieve. Christ died for me because of his love for me. On this day, I do nothing, yet God loves me. I achieve nothing, earn nothing. For the people that God gave the Ten Commandments to, the people of Israel that these stone tablets are delivered to, in Exodus chapter 20, we can back up a few chapters and read about how they had already learned and experienced this trust and, and learned and trusted God's provision in a powerful way. And again, some of you all know this story, but the people of Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for four centuries, countless generations, and they are freed from slavery by some powerful acts of God and they head out into the desert. 
headed for what, uh, it, for a promised land. There is a destination. And I'm gonna assume that after four centuries of slavery, they probably weren't real good on their regional geography. So I don't know how long they thought this was gonna take, but they head out into the desert, planning on going to a promised land. And it doesn't take very long, I think understandably, before they get hungry and they would like some food. Now, again, four centuries of slavery. Food was either brought to them or maybe there was some sort of market, maybe. They are not hunter-gatherer types, okay? They don't know how to get food in the desert. So they get hungry, they get a little hangry, and they start demanding that God give them food. And they start doing the revisionist history thing where they're like, oh, Egypt, that was a day at the beach. It was great. There was sand, there was water. We had all the food we ever wanted. That is the place we should go back to. And God goes, look, um, you're being a little dumb here, but I'm going to feed you. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to go to sleep and sleep off whatever that hangry is. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, there is going to be food all over the ground. And you're going to go out and you're going to scoop it up and you'll make food out of it. Now, only get enough for one day for your household. Tops, that's it, that's all you get. So they go to sleep and they wake up the next morning and there is this substance all over the ground that they call manna, which just means, what the heck is this stuff? Uh, which does seem like a better answer than, I don't know. Like, I think naming it manna was better than, uh, uh. Anyway, so it's manna. So they scoop it up off the ground. Uh, and, and they're a uh, little food insecure because, you know, four centuries of slavery. So they take more than God tells them to take. And, and they take it back to their homes. And they say, look, um, I know he promised there would be some tomorrow, but uh, there hasn't been for the last few days. So uh, I got enough for today and tomorrow. That way I don't have to, you know, I can hit the snooze button. I don't have to go out and get more tomorrow. This will be, be better. And uh, they have enough food for that day and they wake up the next day and it is moldy and full of worms and all this stuff that they tried to hold on to for day two uh, did not last. Okay, so apparently this stuff has a 12 or 18 or 24 hour shelf life. That's all you get. So uh, they go back out, they collect more and there's enough for every household. And they do that for the six days until on the sixth day, God says, hey, tomorrow is the Sabbath day. And this is a big deal to me. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna provide enough food for you to have two days worth of food. So you need to collect two days worth today and that way you don't have to go out and collect tomorrow. I'll take care of you. You can trust me. And I don't know how they all responded. I know I would have said, look, I tried that on Monday and that was, that was a nasty breakfast surprise on Tuesday, okay? That was not, not what I was looking for but I don't really have any other choice. So sure, I'll collect two days. They wake up the next morning and that second day of food is perfectly good. This day of rest was so important to God that he said, look, the other six days, 18 hour shelf life. This day, 48 hour shelf life. I will take care of it. He breaks this formula he has created so that they can rest and learn to trust. When we are working and serving and creating all week, providing for the people that we love, however it is that we do that, maybe that's a job, 
Maybe that's volunteering. Maybe it's taking care of the kids. Maybe it's all of the above. When we are serving and working and providing, it is easy to start believing that it is up to us, that we have to do it, that we need to keep working and striving, that we need to be in control because people are counting on us. There are people that I love and care about who need me to do this so that they are taken care of. I have to do the work. Now, I am not calling us to laziness. There are six days out of seven for hard work, serving other people, all those things. And I am very aware that kids do not stop being kids for a Sabbath day. It's not how that works. Aware of that. And again, we'll talk more about how we can structure Sabbath days and Sabbath moments next week. So please come back for that. Somewhere in this pattern of working and serving and creating, there has to be a moment to take our hands off, to put our pencils down, to rest, to trust. Because when we don't stop to trust, don't stop to rest, we are saying that the work is more important than our trust. Because we've determined that the growth, the growth of our family, of our business, of our personal impact, the growth is up to us. And eventually, our true colors start shining through. We believe my life only has value if I am serving someone, if I am accomplishing or achieving something, if I'm winning Trust doesn't just mean depending on God to provide. It also means trusting in the truth that while, yes, you have some growing to do, and it will mean some hard work and some trial and some stressors, your most important growth is done in trust. Your most important work is done in trust. Galatians 2.20 again. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body. I live this earthly life by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which actually brings us back to the acorn from author Amy Fallon. Does an acorn need to set a goal and fight to achieve an outcome in order to grow into the fullest expression of who she is? Does she have to labor tirelessly to become the oak tree? Or is she just already intrinsically, inherently, everything she needs to be? The acorn will have to fight through being buried and drowned and broken open. It will have to push through the earth, reach for the sky, but it already has everything it needs to become the oak tree. All it has to do 
is undergo the process of being grown. You will have to endure and learn and hope. You will have to push through some barriers and reach for the sky. But what if you already have the key to life because Christ lives in you? What if you already have the key to life because Christ lives in you? The key to your growth, to growing into the fullest expression of who you are, of who you are made to be, is already true in you. Because you and I can say along with Paul, I live by trusting in Christ who lives in me. You live, truly live, by trusting in Christ who lives in you. Let's trust him in prayer together. Father God, would you make us aware in some new and important and meaningful way of your love for us? Not because we've earned it, not because of how much we've grown, just because you love, because you love us, each of us, fully and completely and fiercely and unconditionally. Jesus, thank you for dying for us when we couldn't earn it. When we don't, when I don't, prove very worthy of that love sometimes. Too often. Father, thank you for putting your spirit of love in us. That we can love even through our imperfections. That we can be reminded of your love for us. Father, would you grow that love in us for ourselves, for others, for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.